Hello everyone, it's September 5th, 2023, and we're reviewing the OSIRIS-REx mission, specifically what's going to happen over the next few weeks as it approaches Earth to drop off its rocky payload and then heads back out into deep space for adventures at Apophis. The mission continues, so let's continue the show and lift off! And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 425 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Dennis, I've heard lately that the DSN is... Uh, being pushed to its limit it just has a lot of traffic that's coming and going and you say it's because of cubesats and i was just wondering how many cubesats do we have in deep space at the moment because i I didn't think it was that many yeah so this was surprising but evidently artemis one splashing out those eight cubesats on board and i guess this is also somewhat connected to the fact that a number of them like failed in different ways and so there were kind of like rescue missions that might have eaten up even more time but yeah when it came to just Artemis 1 alone, Orion took 903 hours of DSN time, while these CubeSats took 871. So almost just as much as the actual spacecraft that matters. Wow. These, these things that are supposed to be like, eh, you know, well, you know, they'll, they'll hitch a ride, but it's not, you know, the, <laughs> a really big deal uh, if they, you know, make it or not. But yeah. yeah. I guess it seems like CubeSats aren't a big deal, but communicating with them kind of is if it's in, yeah. you know, deep space. Mm-hmm. And that's something that maybe no one took into account. <laughs> so now I'm starting to see what the problem is here. Yes, yeah, Su- Suzanne Dodd is like, you know, the person uh, in charge uh, of it. I guess the Interplanetary Network Directorate. She was a big person, if, if not DPI on Voyager. I-, I know she was definitely a huge person on Voyager. But yeah, so she uh, she has a great line in Space News where she, uh, <laughs> she basically was like, I'm not sure who thought it was a good idea to put those CubeSats on Artemis 1. <laughs> <laughs> So they're not like doing that kind of like, you know, uh, an athlete, you know, just kind of giving a boilerplate, you know, oh, yeah, you know, the other team played real good. You know, we gave it our best, et cetera. You know, she actually, you know, didn't mince words, apparently talking about these CubeSats. There's obviously frustration uh, with how much time mm-hmm. that they ate up because all the while that something like Artemis 1 is happening, there's still spacecraft, you know, and space telescopes that want to use DSN time. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we need like, I think, uh, a revamp of the DSN network. Yeah, didn't we talk about, yeah, b- yeah. blowing some more money on it. They, they do have some plans for upgrades, but like, yeah, I, 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 like those major, you know, the really big dishes, the, the three of them, I guess, that they have, mm-hmm. um, like the really big ones. They, uh, yeah. I feel like uh, we, we kind of all settled on that's an investment that's worth it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, in terms of like, launch, for sure. But. Oh, oh, oh! Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I was, th- I was thinking about small sats on launches, not, uh, not, <laughs> not upgrading DSN. Yeah, yeah. Upgrading DSN is, is the other side to being able to launch small sats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we, we know how to build big, you know, radar dishes or you know, radar dishes, uh, <laughs> radio dishes on the ground. So it's, it's not like uh, we're talking about building, you know, a billion dollar spacecraft, right? I mean, it can't be that much. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And I think we talked about what the cost would be, and I don't remember now, but I guess it's the operational cost. I, you know, I mean, there are lots of... Sure, sure. Yeah, I can see how it might require more money than you'd think. But at the same time, if you want to grow our presence in space and you need to support the other parts of that infrastructure that will make that happen, you know, like you've got to be able to communicate with spacecraft in deep space. You can't just send them there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so this is no small issue, really. Now, that's a good point. And, and it's not a good budgetary environment for NASA right now either. Oh, yeah. And I think Mike 
pointing out part of the other problem is that NASA gives out DSN to all the missions for free, which effectively eliminates the possibility of commercial alternatives. That's right. Because mm. I know there's there are there are right ground station as a service kind of companies, but that's for like near Earth. Right, that's those are for like Leo operations and not deep space ones because it's just you know harder the further out mm -hmm. you go, you need more power. But that's that's a good point, Mike. Well, I mean, once demand outstrips supply, maybe you can make it a commercial case for it, and you know you can start your own deep space network. Deep space, yeah. So charging, <laughs> charging by the hour for it. <laughs> like you can go on NASA's waiting list, or you could just you know pay the money and do what you got to do. Oh. Something like that. I don't know. I dig. So in the news, Osiris Rex prep. So we're uh, preparing for a uh, sample return, and I guess there's a lot of news regarding that. Uh, so what's the latest on this upcoming these upcoming final days? Yeah. So uh, NASA did their Osiris Rex landing or sample return preparation briefing, uh, and they talked about the you know recent history of OSIRIS-REx or the, the history of the OSIRIS-REx program, I guess. Um, and then talked about like what they were doing, uh, to get ready for, uh, the sample return and what they were doing during the sample return, like what, what it actually looks like. Um, so quick timeline, um, OSIRIS-REx was selected as New Frontiers, uh, three, right? The, the third New Frontiers mission uh, in 2011. Um, it was launched in 2016. It arrived at Bennu uh, in 2018, and it was there for 18 months. It did its sample in 2020, and it returned in 2021. Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't there for 18 months. It did 18 months worth of survey before it did uh, its sample collection. And the uh, OSIRIS-REx team quite correctly has plenty of uh braggy things to say about their mission right like the, mm -hmm. absolutely welcome to uh to brag on this um really important mission uh, and really successful mission the uh sample that they're bringing back is the largest sample uh of material from beyond the orbit of the moon and like i can't think of a better thing to say about osiris rex like i need to remember that factoid next time somebody asks me uh about you know did you hear this uh asteroid uh sample that they're bringing back uh, yeah yeah it's it's a pretty cool mission you know that's the largest sample that we've ever brought back from beyond the orbit of the moon so the last couple of months have been a pretty hectic time for the utah test and training range um they have been uh doing tests and rehearsals and Dante Loretta, the PI, uh, who's just like a fantastic person gave a little bit of a definition between, uh, tests and rehearsals. Um, and it's, I mean, it's exactly what, what it sounds like, right? A, a test is using test equipment. A rehearsal is, uh, using a, a replica, not a, a direct copy and is doing it out in person, out in the real world. So the big thing that they've done uh, is this uh, drop test where they took uh, a replica of the reentry capsule, the sample return capsule, and they hauled it up about 7,000 feet in the air, uh, dangling it from below a helicopter and dropped it down to the desert floor. So um, they skipped the drogue chute and they had the replica immediately pull out its main chute um, and then descend under the main chute. What's 
interesting is that it's not super clear to me looking at the footage um, whether this was a full replication or a full test of the main shoot deployment mechanism. So judging by the way that other uh, parachute deployment systems work, and I'm assuming that this is uh, going to be the case for uh, for OSIRIS-REx's uh, sample return capsule as well, is you have a drogue chute that's nice and small, um, and it's easy to push out of a of a cannon or, you know, a canister, you use uh, an explosive usually, and you just blow it out the back and it's small enough that it doesn't need a particular deployment sequence to work, right? It can just get tossed out into the airstream and it's going to inflate and start pulling. The drogue chute does two things. It stabilizes the vehicle so that the front end is pointing forward and you know, prevents it from tumbling. It might not be super stable. It might be wobbling back and forth, but at least, you know, it's headed in the right direction. So then the other thing that the joke shoot does is it provides this pull. And so you allow that pull to yank the main chute out of its canister. And so a lot of parachutes are going to be packed uh, first in a bag and the bag is connected to the drogue chutes line. And then the whole bag is put inside of a canister. And so when you're ready for the drogue chute to pull out the main chute, you release or cut a line that is uh, directing the tension from the parachute directly to the capsule. Um, and that tension, instead of pulling on the capsule, then goes to the next thing that is connected to, which is the the main chute. And so it pulls the bag out and the chute comes with it. And then the bag gets pulled off as the drogue chute continues to fall behind. And so then the main chute is revealed from the outside, the lowest part of the canopy, progressively up towards the top. It, it you know, pulls out from bottom to top. And it, in the images, it, it's tough to tell if it's being pulled out of its, or not just the, vi the images, there's video. It's tough to tell if it's being pulled out of its canister um, with the helicopter acting as the drone, sh the, the drogue chute, uh, or if the uh, main chute is packed on the helicopter or rather the sled that the helicopter is dangling. And when the, when the capsule replica is dropped, if it's, um, I guess maybe even pulling the shoot out the other way. I don't think that's the case, but in any event, Dave in the chat says, is it not a bit late to be testing the parachute system? And like, I think this is such a great question and it relates to a question that was asked, um, at the press conference, uh, by Justin Davenport. Justin's question was what lessons learned, uh, from Genesis are being applied, uh, to OSIRIS-REx and like, there weren't any particular like specific answers that like, I really, I really want. Oh yeah. Well, this thing happened, uh, in Genesis. And so to mitigate that, we've done this and this, but you know, it's, uh, they still had some, uh, some answers that show that they, you know, weren't, weren't not learning their, weren't failing to learn their lesson. But the, the answers that they gave were that they've done extensive sample return, uh, an extensive sample return capsule test program, uh, and that was conducted before launch. But now, um, during the mission, they've been continuing to study the capsule's design. They want to remain fresh, and they want to know every single every single thing that is in the capsule and can affect the outcome of the mission. And then they also said that they've been 
working with the ground recovery teams to make sure that they're prepared for uh, a landing that's not as gentle as they would hope uh, and for other uh, contingencies. But the answer is no, it's not too late. If this was the only thing that they had done, yes, it would be too late. But they're not testing it so that they can make changes. They're testing it to understand how it behaves. And honestly, one of the things that I was really curious about that uh, didn't get answered, but I, I suspect that they might have been using parachutes that were constructed at the same time uh, as the actual vehicle. I, I wonder if one of the things that they were testing was how have these parachutes degraded over time being packed up? And like, obviously they can't replicate the entire experience, the entire environment that the flight parachutes have experienced. But like, I wouldn't be surprised if they had at least sat in a cold room, a cold, dark room somewhere this whole time. <laughs> okay. So right, this, this drop test. So not only do they need to test all the equipment that, the, that is out there at the range, but they also need to test all of the human procedures and the human behaviors uh, that are going into uh, using that equipment. So they said the drop rehearsal went, uh, quote, beautifully, and it just they seemed very happy with their ability to uh, to track the, the vehicle as it comes down and to pinpoint its location. Um, the other half of that is actually doing the recovery. And that was a separate rehearsal that they did um, where they actually went and put the replica out in the desert. They went and placed it rather than, you know, going straight at the replica after they had dropped it. They kind of split Presumably split their personnel, but they split their efforts here. Um, and so they pretended like, hey, this thing just landed, and they went and recovered the capsule. Uh, I'm going to talk about what they actually do during that recovery effort in a second. But one of the things that they talked about as happening before that uh, was the capsule release criteria. And they actually have three things that they listed um, that they are checking before they're deciding whether to commit to actually releasing the capsule and having it come into land. Uh, the first one is human safety. I think that's like an obvious thing that, you know, it can never be s- stated too many times. They also look at capsule survivability. The capsule is re-entering at 12.3 kilometers per second. So the, the engineering and command teams um, are all, you know, doing their go, no go polling. And part of that is like, it has anything come up that would prevent the capsule from uh, surviving this reentry, And then finally landing accuracy. And this one really comes down to like, did we uh, perform our TCMs trajectory correction maneuvers properly? Are we going to the right place? Are we going to be able to put the capsule down? Oh, and I'm sorry. Cap- capsule survivability also includes weather, right? Like Utah was picked specifically because it's a great place uh, in terms of, of weather for landing recovery. Uh, but you never know. Okay, so the capsule release criteria uh, is sort of like in the middle of the final approach um, sequence. So there are four thruster firings that are planned as Osiris Rex uh, approaches Earth. Uh, July 26th actually was the first uh, thruster firing, and it was successfully completed. It brought the vehicle's closest approach to Earth uh, from 1,250 miles out to 125 miles out. So that's reducing the the distance that it's missing Earth by by, by, by a factor of 10. The next maneuver is going to happen on September 10th. Today is September 3rd, 4th, 5th. Yeah, so that's going to be after the show. So the next uh, thruster firing is going to be on September 10th. And that's actually moving the vehicle into its re-entry trajectory. Um, If they did the thruster firing on the 10th 
and then did nothing else, the entire vehicle would re-enter Earth's atmosphere and burn up. Actually, I don't know if that's true. It would it would enter Earth's atmosphere, but with additional mass, it might just skip out and uh, and not re-enter. Um, but in any event, it wouldn't miss Earth at that point. Um, on September 17th, they have an opportunity to do a TCM after their initial burn uh, to the reentry trajectory. So they're going to spend those seven days looking at the vehicle's trajectory and figuring out if they've gotten exactly where they want it to be. Um, looking at uh, past NASA's past record, uh, I'm betting that they're not going to have to do their TCM. We'll see. Um, on uh, September 24th at 0230 hours MDT, so uh, Mountain Daylight Time, that's uh, between Central and uh, Pacific Time. At 2.30 a.m., they're going to make the decision whether or not to release the capsule. That's when they're going to do their final evaluation of their capsule release criteria. Then they will release the capsule at 0442 MDT. And then after that, they'll do a diversion burn at 0502 MDT. And that 502 AM burn is so that OSIRIS-REx doesn't enter the atmosphere. Now, that's something that you would want to do anyway, right? You'd want to separate uh, from the capsule and make sure you're nice and far away from it and that you're not going to enter the atmosphere and potentially collide or uh, introduce additional uh, debris into the atmosphere that makes tracking it harder or whatever. But what's really cool is that this diversion burn, it'll be pushing the main OSIRIS-REx vehicle It'll be pushing it out so that its closest approach to Earth uh, will go up to 485 miles. It's not 500 miles and it's not 450 miles, it's 485 miles because they're doing a precision burn because Osiris-Rex is going to be headed out to Apophis. It'll get there in 2029. And this burn is the first burn on its way to Apophis. And like it's doing that as part of its diversion burn to avoid the re-entering capsule. I think that's just really pleasing for some reason. Mm-hmm. No, that is really cool. Um, <laughs> so the capsule is released at uh, 0442 and it re-enters at 0842. After its re-entry sequence, um, they're going to run out and recover the capsule and get it back to a clean room that they've built on base. Uh, Dante Loretta said that he's uh, on the recovery team. I think it's, I mean, we all know uh, Loretta is like a really interesting and fun PI, right? Like I can't imagine uh, how much the people who work for him enjoy working with him. But he like with this gleeful look in his eye said, I'm on the recovery team because I wanted to be there as we welcome this thing home. And so uh, the whole recovery team, they're going to run out to the vehicle. They're going to respond first in helicopters and then additional team members. It looks like we'll be arriving in four wheelers um, if the rehearsal uh, is anything to judge by. Uh, First, they'll confirm that the area is safe for people, um, and then they will get to the capsule and they'll secure it. Uh, They'll be wrapping it in Teflon bags um, and then putting it in a handling fixture. And I think the handling fixture is separate from the cargo net that they'll wrap it in. Um, But there's a chance that the handling fixture is actually just a cargo net. But I think they're going to put a handling fixture on it and then put in a cargo net so they can take it out of the cargo net and use the handling fixture. Uh, But anyway, they'll wrap it in a cargo net and transport it uh, to the clean room uh, under uh, a long line attached to a helicopter. While that's happening, I'm not 100% sure about the timeline here, 
but they are going to be taking samples uh, of the air, soil, and water, uh, such as it is, um, to use as a comparison for when the samples are examined. Uh, you want to know if something came from Utah or from Bennu, right? Like that, that's an important thing. Um, and so this is like your one best chance to get like a ground truth uh, to compare to. So the way they're doing this, um, just looking at the video, is they're putting out a bunch of flags. They're going to be putting white flags uh, at regular intervals along the drag path of the capsule. Um, and then they're putting pink or red flags around the capsule to mark its resting point. And I think what they're planning on doing, this is a guess, but I think what they're planning on doing is placing those flags before the capsule's moved, then securing the capsule. And once the capsule's away, then they can go and take their samples. And that's just, you know, taking um, uh, plastic bags and scooping dirt into them, but taking samples at each of those uh, flags that they put along the whole drag path so they can see not just where the capsule landed up, but what it went through along the way. Uh, right, so they fly the capsule to uh, the clean room. Actually, they fly it to basically a parking lot outside the hangar that the clean room is in. They have people to help direct the capsule into this uh, wheeled cart that is specially built to match the conical shape of the heat shield. Uh, and then they wheel it into the hangar and into the clean room. And they, they built this really beautiful like mobile clean room for this recovery. It's sort of like a collection of big boxes uh, made out of clear plastic, uh, like opaque plastic and uh, aluminum, uh, some aluminum sheets, some aluminum, what look like extrusions in the corners. It, it's all built on top of what look like really thin shipping pallets. I don't, I don't think that they're actually shipping pallets. I think it's just the, the way that the foundation is constructed, but it's this like really lovely uh, and yet very kind of just shoddy looking structure because it's not you know, it's temporary. It's, it's not there to be able to even survive the outside winds. It's inside of a hangar. Um, and so it's there and it does its one job very well. The one job is, is clean <laughs> and it's going to keep uh, the capsule clean. Um, so they will do a little bit of work on the, on the capsule right there in Utah. Um, they'll do a little bit of disassembly mostly so that they can get in to purge the sample container with nitrogen and make sure that everything's nice and clean. The rest of their work is mostly just going to be packing the thing up and getting ready to ship it. Um, it will be shipped to the Astro Materials facility at Johnson. Um, this is the same facility uh, that has samples from Apollo, from Stardust, and from Genesis. Um, and they built a whole new clean room for Bennu. I don't think this is unusual. I think I think you generally are going to do this to make sure that you don't have cross-contamination. Uh, but the Bennu samples are going to have their own dedicated room that's brand new and fresh just for them. Now, remember, OSIRIS-REx was an incredibly successful mission. Uh, the proposal uh, promised two ounces of material returned, and they only did one uh, TAGSAM uh, collection. Um, TAGSAM is the name of the instrument at the end of the sample arm. They only, they only did one, and they collected uh, what they estimate to be eight ounces or 250 grams worth of material. Um, and like we talked about the way that they measure it, they swing the arm back and forth and then look at how the vehicle's uh, rotational velocity changes. Not rotational momentum. I got it this time. 
And yeah, like at that point, the science begins. Um, and it's, it's really cool that we're like right here on the cusp of, of new science being done. Very cool. I have one question going back to just out of curiosity. So um, you said that if it makes no further corrections, right, um, like the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft itself, it would come within closest approach to 125 miles, something like that? Right. So there, Yeah, there, 125, I see. There, right. Yeah, there, there are two, there are like three different distances, I guess four different distances. One is the trajectory it was on before July 26th, and that was uh, 1,250 miles. Right now, it's at the closest approach, uh, which is uh, 125 miles. I guess a, a closer approach than that is actually grazing the atmosphere. <laughs> and then the um, the fourth option is 485, which is everything goes well. It's on its way to Apophis. So I was wondering, um, let's say that no corrections happened. Would the spacecraft, I mean, like you said, it might skim the atmosphere, but would it go into an Earth-centric orbit or would it continue in its heliocentric orbit? Like I have, I have no actual answer from uh, official sources, but I, like I'm pretty confident in saying there's no way it's getting captured into an Earth orbit. Like it's just it's so delicate the amount of speed you have to lose, right? The amount of uh drag has to be just right. And like the more likely thing is that it would just burn up. Either go back into a sun orbit or, or burn up. I don't I don't think that there's a second chance once they get down to the release trajectory. Right. Cause it, yeah, because it would be a very a very delicate balance. You'd have to lose just the right amount of speed, but not so quickly. And at such an angle that you, that you would burn up, so it's kind of tricky. It might not even be possible, I suppose. Um, but I was just curious. Osiris Rex has got big old solar panels, so it really doesn't matter, right? Like, yeah. as soon as those solar panels hit the atmosphere, they're done. But you know, it's worth pointing out that the sample return capsule isn't making any avoidance maneuvers after that, right? Like, they go into this into this trajectory and drop the sample container. And then get out of the way, but the sample container doesn't get out of the way. Just kind of a scary thing to think about that. It's like, okay, I got to put the whole spacecraft on this potentially destructive trajectory. Then it has to veer off. (laughs) Exactly. After I release the sample, then uh, capsule, then I can change it. But (laughs) until then, I bet there'll be some sweaty palms. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's it's going to be that that big of a deal because, you know, they're doing their diversion burn shortly after it. I think their main concern is going to be, did we put the return capsule on the correct trajectory? No, that's true. I was going to say, yeah, the uh, Osiris Apex extended mission is just that. It's extended mission, whereas the key primary (laughs) goal is to get these samples back to Earth. So, yeah. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what's the first? New Frontiers competition delayed. While the third NASA New Frontiers mission, OSIRIS-REx, prepares for its sample return to Earth and the next mission, Dragonfly, undergoes development, the U.S. Space Agency confirmed that the fifth mission in the series will be delayed to no earlier than 2026 due to budgetary issues in the Planetary Science Division. 
The final announcement of Opportunity was originally planned to be released later this year, but budget uncertainty after the debt ceiling agreement reached the summer has pushed that back three years. The list for the competition will retain the Comet Surface Sample Return, Lunar Geophysical Network, and Saturn Probe concepts, while adding missions to Ceres, Enceladus, Titan, Venus, and a Centaur. And then next up, the Ariane 6 hot fire test has been delayed. Due to a technical issue, a planned hot fire test of the Ariane 6's Vulcan 2.1 engine has been postponed. The engine, which powers the rocket's core stage, was going to be fired at the new Ariane 6 launch pad at the Yana Space Center. But the control bench, which manages the launcher's propellant loading and automated countdown, experienced a problem. This is the second time the short hot fire test has been delayed. In the meantime, tests of the vehicle's upper stage Vinci engine will continue to take place in Germany with the hope of the Ariane 6 seeing its first launch in 2024. And finally, Otterpup has been detumbled. Six weeks ago, an anomalous deployment from Launcher's Orbiter spacecraft left Starfish Space's Otterpup vehicle rotating at 100 times greater than normal. Expected to demo docking maneuvers on orbit, the Starfish team needed to detumble the spacecraft in order to salvage the mission. Using the vehicle's three torque rods, Otter Pup spin was eventually brought under control, but not after power levels dropped so low that the main flight computer turned off twice. Emergency maneuvers revived the spacecraft, and while it may have suffered some damage from tumbling, Starfish is now performing an extensive checkout of the system to validate its health. All right, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have just two winners. We have Uncle Willie and Cy Kyle, and they both get bonus points. Uh, those are the only winners. <laughs> um, the clue mm. was a variation on your clue, Dennis, right? Which was what? It was like icicle, I think? Yeah, it was, it was only It was just yeah, a single icicle. word. <laughs> and my clue was icicle and pebble. Uh, so uh, I thought that was clever. I don't know, maybe <laughs> I like that. more difficult. <laughs> Just two correct guesses, that kind of surprised me. Uh, but the event is for the 9th of September 2006, and it was the launch of STS-115, which was Atlantis. And uh, I guess we'll get to the reference for the clue uh, in time. But uh, yeah, so this was a mission. Uh, I guess we should always start with like every STS-based uh, Twisif, right, with a list of the crew. I, I actually wasn't sure about that, but I think you did it last time, right? I'm trying to like. I can't say I like some consistency. Do it exhaustively necessarily, <laughs> yeah. but like yeah, because I mean, sometimes I just want to skip it. But you yeah, know. sometimes sometimes the crews are pretty awesome. Like this this is mm -hmm. this is one of the more mustachioed crews. At least the spacewalkers are. Uh, the mission specialists include a number of mustaches, which is pretty great. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, yeah. Well, okay, yeah. So let's so let's go down. So so first it is <laughs> um is commanded by Brent Jett Jr. And I have to admit, I don't think I'm familiar with that astronaut. And I know that's crazy, but I know I would remember Jet. And so how familiar are you guys with Brent? Because I'm not. And I thought I knew them all, which I'm sure I don't. But oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew who he was just because I, you know, I've been looking really into reading shuttle, shuttle for the last N years. But yeah, he, he was he was one of the um, in this one book. It sounds like he was one of uh, what they call the Bubba's. Who were the guys that were, uh, you know, got got along really well with uh, what's his name? George Lowe, was it? Who was deciding who would get missions. And so, you know, flying four times on shuttle is pretty good. And so I, I think I think that was that was the idea. Okay. Is it George um, Lowe? It's um Oh George Abbey. That's who it is. The Bubba's had to be friends with George Abbey, basically. And so I think, you know. That's ringing a bell now. Yeah, actually. yeah. Not yeah. He, what you just said, yeah. Yeah, because it was it was such a crapshoot apparently mm -hmm. to like figure out whether you were gonna get, you know, yeah, a, a seat or not, because there was just even though seven seats is a lot, <laughs> uh, there, there, there's just so many more astronauts. And so, yeah. But anyway, that's all I know really about Brent Jett is that it, it sounds like he got along with George Abbey. And so he got to fly four times, which which ain't bad. Yeah. And I just feel like with the last name like Jett, 
I would not forget that name. So I'm guessing I just hadn't heard of him. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Still forgot. But a very cool last name for an astronaut. Uh, the pilot of this mission was Chris Ferguson. Uh, I do know who that is. Uh, and then we have the mission specialist, uh, Stephen McLean of the Canadian Space Agency. And then Daniel Burbank and Joseph R. Tanner. So those are... Oh, and then finally, Heidi Marie Stefanishin Piper. I don't know if I said the last name right. It's apparently Ukrainian, Stefanishin or Stefanishin. And those are the mission specialists. So lots of mission specialists, mostly for EVAs and a little bit of uh, Canada Arm operation, as it turns out. So this was actually the first mission after the two return to flight missions. And I think was the last one a return to flight mission, Dennis? I feel like you had mentioned it last episode. Oh, no. Um, This, or sorry, I think it was... Yeah, we did talk about it being a return to flight. But I think we recently But but that was but this was yeah. this was 41D, so that was, you know, post Challenger. So diff- mm-hmm. different uh Oh, context. true. Yeah, yeah I yeah. guess there's multiple ones. Yeah. So this is the first post Columbia return to flight mission. Uh, or I'm sorry, this is the first non return to flight. This is the first yeah. post post Columbia non return to flight mission. Yeah. <laughs> How far out can you chain that? Can you have non non return to flight flight <laughs> first post non yeah. So yeah, there was the two re- there was the two return to flight missions after Columbia and then there was just the first regular mission and you know that's what this one was. Um and the original launch date was actually for April of 2003, uh, but obviously that was postponed because uh just prior to that in February that's when the Columbia disaster happened. So uh, yeah, it was postponed a number of years. And uh, this is the first post-Columbia major assembly mission for the ISS. So they were bringing up some pretty big hardware. Um, and the launch date that was initially chosen was actually going to be August the 27th. I'm sorry, the first launch date, uh, I'm not sure exactly when that was. It was sometime probably in late August, but they ended up postponing it to the 27th of August. And that was to get some better lighting conditions. And so that kind of gives you an idea of you know the state of mind that they were in, that they really wanted to be able to examine the external tank for any foam loss or like any debris strikes that might happen. They wanted to be able to keep the cameras trained on it and see what happened. So they, so this is interesting. So like they, it was kind of like a requirement that they launched during the daytime, uh, which isn't something that I ever thought about because, you know, I've seen shuttles go up at all times of day and night. It tends to not matter, but um, I guess, uh, you know, like initially they just wanted to make sure that they could see everything. But then there was some bad weather. And what was interesting, um, there, were, there was a couple of things. The first of which was the most powerful lightning strike that was ever recorded at Kennedy Space Center. So apparently this is not just the most powerful lightning strike to hit a shuttle pad, which it did. So it hit the pad lightning rod, and this is while the shuttle was mounted there on the pad. But apparently it was the most powerful lightning strike that was recorded, which I almost find hard to believe, but I guess, you know, this was it. So Hmm. yeah, which I assume was maybe what they call, was it a positive strike, right? Does that make sense? Uh, I know that that's a term. Uh, It's when you have lightning from the cloud top to ground as opposed to the cloud bottom to ground mm. um, and because of the extra length of the bolt there's higher voltage there i think that's how that works <laughs> well and also let's let's be specific uh the most powerful lightning strike recorded at ksc not like in human history right oh no yeah correct right the most powerful one at ksc right and then with the with the positive strike i think it's that clouds when they're producing lightning they have negative charge on the bottom of the cloud and positive at the top Correct. And so yeah, if, there's, if there's right, lightning yeah. from the bottom of the cloud to the ground, then it's negative charge from the cloud, but it's from the top, it's positive charge. But I like, I say that, but I also don't know how the charge 
wouldn't just equal out in the cloud rather than skipping the negative charge at the bottom of the cloud and going all the way down to the ground. So No, I think you're right, but I think that that's a mystery that actually no one actually has the answer to. Um, oh, because I remember reading okay, about this. Mm. And, and no one knows how that works. Yeah. It's you cause you can actually have like various layers. You can have like, you know, like negative at the bottom, then positive, then negative again, then positive. So yeah, like these That's what yeah, I'm that seeing doing a Google. Yeah, you have like these layers of charge and I don't think uh like meteorologists or scientists quite understand how that works. So I guess so they said positive lightning could be ten times greater, and I'm guessing because there's Mm-hmm. There's going to be some charge shielding, like canceling out within the cloud oh. if you have both positive and negative. Whereas with positive lightning, it looks like you just have a larger potential across yeah. them. And apparently, positive lightning strikes are something that like aircrafts are not designed to cope with. So you really don't want to get struck by a positive bolt. Oh, God. Uh, just the regular negative ones. But they're like 100 times rarer, so it's not nearly as common. Yes. Yeah, so as a result of this lightning strike, the launch was pushed back a few days in order to assess any damage. But then also there was a hurricane that was coming. So they had to contend with this hurricane. Uh, and they decided that, you know, in light of the approaching hurricane, they were going to roll the shuttle back to the VAB. And I guess they got about halfway there and then they changed their minds and actually put it back on the pad uh, because they figured they could, you know, just weather the storm because at that point it had kind of become, I guess, more of a tropical depression. I think that the threshold is 79 miles an hour, which is what defines a hurricane. Mm. Um, It was more of a tropical storm at that point. And I guess that just happens to be the limit for the shuttle as well, um, which is kind of a weird coincidence. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's still very high. Like they are willing to keep a shuttle on the pad during 70 something mile an hour winds which is just really amazes me i wouldn't <laughs> have thought that that would be a safe thing to do at all um but that's what they did so they rolled it back to the pad and that was the first time that that had ever been done that they had gotten sort of like halfway and then put it back on the launch pad there was a k-band antenna that had been apparently possibly incorrectly installed and they had to evaluate that as well one of the big things that goes back to the clue that i want to talk about was the flash evaporator system and this is where the icicle part comes from uh so there was a problem with some ice that was building up during the ascent to orbit. And this happens at about three minutes into flight. This is before, or I'm sorry, this is after the SRB separation. And this is once you get higher up because apparently flash evaporators don't work well at sea level, which kind of makes sense because you want to, you know, like really evaporate that water. They had gotten some readings that were showing a lower than normal temperature, and it was likely due to water that was in the ducts of, well, and this is the thing I don't understand, what ducts it got into, I don't know, but um, due to the rain, you know, just because of the hurricane, uh, there was some water that was lodged in some interesting areas. Um, I'm guessing, like, Dennis, maybe you know what holes there are there are on shuttles where maybe like water could get in, because that's the only thing I could think of. Otherwise, I don't know how water gets in. It could also be that maybe it was just, it condensated within, mm-hmm. like, even if it was still sealed off because of the the weather or whatever, it it managed to have condensation form, and then that's what wound up getting the water. Because, yeah, otherwise the water shouldn't be able to find its mm-hmm. way into, you know, pipes within the shuttle. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it was necessarily pipes, but, um, I mean, it says ducts, so I guess that does mean pipe. But if you just get some water or, you know, condensation in areas where it shouldn't be, and then you have pipes that are very cold, and then they freeze the water. So it's kind of like, you know, having frost stuck to a very cold pipe, possibly. Um, But it seems to have been in some kind of ducting. So Mission Control had seen this on their instruments, and they told Jet and Ferguson to, quote unquote, reconfigure the flash evaporator system. I couldn't figure out what that meant, but um, I did read that possibly it was to cycle heaters to melt the ice. So apparently there are heaters, or maybe just, you know, don't operate the flash evaporator system and maybe, you know, that would cause it to warm up, which certainly during, you know, the ascent to orbit doesn't seem 
too unlikely because it does get kind of hot. Um, and I had also read in some interesting forums on NASA spaceflight uh, that maybe this was caused by an external tank proximity to the belly of the orbiter, and that's where this ducting was. So maybe the cold hydrogen caused some of that to freeze, and that's why this happened. Um, but possibly also just because there was an excess of water and you know the flash evaporator system was operating, and it does have Freon-22. Um, that's the coolant that is used on board shuttle. And so maybe that had just frozen some water that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a, a mission report saying that basically the, 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 there were high moisture conditions because of the weather in the days prior to launch. And so that's why the condensate formed in there. Yeah, I mean, that's totally uh, makes sense. I mean, I feel like there's always high moisture conditions in Florida. <laughs> I don't know how much more different this would have been. H higher. Uh, so that's kind of <laughs> higher than normal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so this mission, uh, the main purpose of this particular mission was uh, the integrated truss segment uh, three and four. So this is in, you know, the somewhat more earlier days of the shuttle or I'm sorry, of uh, the ISS. And it wasn't quite in its uh, full configuration just yet. They were to deliver a truss assembly uh, with the 2A and 4A solar arrays. And at that time, the P6 truss and array, they were mounted on the Z1 truss at that time. So if you remember, it just looked funny. Uh -huh. um, it's a solar array at an angle. And to me, it kind of looks like it's on top of the station and it's at like a 90 degree angle from the direction that it normally sits. So it's a, it's just a very odd looking station configuration. Mm. Um, but that's where it was at that time. So just to keep that in mind in the, um, Truss was handed over with uh, the shuttle's candid arm to the ISS candid arm too, and that was done by Stephen McLean. And uh, that's kind of an interesting thing because uh, he was the first Canadian to operate candid arm two and actually to perform an EVA, which he later did. Um, Go figure. And uh, that kind of surprised me. Yeah, uh, he's, <laughs> I thought maybe a Canadian had operated the candid arm prior to that and had performed an EVA, um, but I guess 2006 was the first time. Well, and how often do they do arm-to-arm -arm transfers? Like, I know that it happened on occasion, but I don't think it was that often. Maybe, but I, I think that for probably the delivery of quite a bit of the ISS at a certain point, I thought that maybe that would be pretty common uh, it, just because... Yeah, I think once you got to ISS assembly, then then handing it off would be was was more common than... Just because before getting it, or after, because <laughs> having to get it from shuttle to say the far end of a truss, there has to be a handoff at some point. Although I suppose the Canarm two could, you know, like inchworm its way over and grab it. Um, I don't know enough about the position of the shuttle as it's docked. You know, they would make that super practical. I mean, I think so, but then it would have to be mounted somewhere else. So it kind of makes sense that you would just hand it from one arm to another. That seems like the more logistically easy thing to do. Yes. Talking out of my butt, I'll bet that Canadarm2 on ISS was mounted or what was anchored on the, what's the rail system? CETA. Uh, they're using the CETA rail a lot. And so I'll bet that Canadarm2 was like base stationed on the CETA. And then from there, it's not that big of a deal to reach into the shuttle's payload bay, but like is not great, right? Because the shuttle points down towards Earth, the the engines are pointed at Earth, and then the cargo bay is pointed um, along the US segment towards the Russian segment. So it's like, you know, positioned inward, mm -hmm. but the CETA cart is relatively high, or the CETA rail is is relatively high up on ISS. And you know, they would have had the arm as far out towards the end of the uh, of the truss as they, you know, could have without pushing things, I, I believe. So 
it it does make sense that they would want to grab it with the shuttle's arm and then reach it out and that way they get you know almost like double the operational range, right? Yeah, exactly. I I think you're spot on with that. So the Canadarm2, that's what put the truss segment in place. But as far as actually, you know, like all the hookups that has to be done by the astronauts, that's not something that you can do with a Canadarm, which is why you really still need astronauts to actually install any kind of a module or anything or any truss segment. There's a lot of hoses and wires and who knows what else. (laughs) Um, So that was... (laughs) Yep. TM, <laughs> hoses and wires, and yeah. who knows what else. So that took three spacewalks um, just to get you know that in place, which makes sense. It's a, obviously a very huge and critical part of the station. But on the final spacewalk, they had some trouble with their pre-breathing before they did the EVA. Uh, they had a, a remote power controller that had tripped. And as I understand it, this is something kind of like a circuit breaker. So basically, um, a depressurization pump failed. It just didn't come on. And so they were not able to you know evacuate the air from the airlock. Um, but it was pretty simple to just verify uh, that it had tripped um, um, and, you know, they just did a reset and they were able to depressurize. Then getting on to the second part of the clue, right, because uh, it was Icicle and Pebble. Let's talk about the Pebble, uh, which was an MMOD impact. And um, this was uh, something that had hit the payload bay door radiator um, on the right side of the shuttle. So this is a radiator that, like I said, circulates Freon 22. I kind of learned a little bit about that. Uh, and uh, and I imagine this is part of a whole heat exchange loop that does go to the flash evaporator system. So really they had multiple problems with their cooling system, um, you know, in two different places. And uh, this was something that was not noticed during the time on orbit because it didn't have any negative impact, thankfully. But what they found was it was a 0.10 inch diameter hole So not big, but actually the second largest strike in shuttle history, apparently. The radiator system has a honeycomb core type of a panel that faces out into the interior of the shuttle bay, and that's what was penetrated. And so it had impacted the outer layer first, and then had kind of spread out as whatever had impacted basically spread, you know, its energy and, you know, disintegrated as it moved through the honeycomb core. Mm. It had penetrated five cells. Luckily, this didn't impact any critical systems, but it did just miss a Freon 22 plumbing, some of the piping there, or like some of the plumbing or valves or whatever. Um, There was a line of Freon 22 and uh, it had missed it. Uh, So I guess it's, you know, good thing that that didn't happen. Uh, If that did happen, uh, they would actually have to end the mission and come back. Like that actually uh, means that you return to Earth Mm. in that instance. So, and I don't think anything like that has ever happened on shuttle. That was never a reason to cut a mission short. Not a debris strike. There was one where a fuel cell was acting up enough that they aborted the mission and then they reflew the same entire crew, which was pretty cool. Oh, okay, interesting. But but yeah. I don't know about any other mission that had to get cut short like you're describing. Yeah, th- those radiators were a constant source of, of worry for NASA um, just because they're so big. And because they're mm-hmm. built into the bay doors, like, what are you going to do if, if you can't close your doors you can't come home in that shuttle basically and so you know it's kind of this intersection of of uh you know any warping it forms a mechanical issue any debris strikes like this can form uh, a cooling issue and like just everything came down to making sure those doors could close and while they were open they could do their cooling job effectively so it's not terribly surprising that they spent so much worry about are we going to go home because of this yeah and so what you're saying just to be clear for everyone is that you have to have the doors open in order for these things to function um yeah 
like say that you had a mission where like you didn't have any cargo at all that you were breaking up, you would still have to open the doors. And that's always a risk because you might not be able to close them. So, but I guess there's nowhere else to put a radiator <laughs> on a, you know, a shuttle. <laughs> well, certainly no other places that they did put radiators, right? <laughs> but I mean, I can't think of any place where you could possibly. Put no, it's, it's like, the I mean, best place to put it. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So once on the ground and once they, oh, and um, I'll just mention, uh, yeah, like you said, these were a problem and the, just because of the amount of area that they take up. I did look at a little table um, that showed the possibility of any kind of a debris strike on those radiators. And for a piece of debris that was just over one millimeter in size, it's about 1% or just over 1%. So, you know, I guess this is statistically about what you would expect, right? You know, the probability of an impact. And then you look at all the shuttle missions that there have been and, uh, you know, eventually it takes a hit okay. and there might've been other impacts actually. And maybe they were just a lot smaller. Cause this one, like I said, is the second biggest uh, that has ever hit the shuttle. I mean, there was the window impact. That yeah. There was a window impact. I remember that one. So David, how did, how did they log these impacts like afterwards on the ground? Oh, oh, are you asking me that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, thank you for uh, reminding me. So apparently they have what's called a ding log, uh, <laughs> which I think is the best name. And I'd like to think at NASA, there's a big catalog of dings and they, you know, and where it's called the ding log. And this is a ding log item number uh, 18. So yeah, diameter of one point or 0 0.108 inches. Um, yeah. Wow. I thought, and I was honestly wondering, is that a coincidence? Like maybe ding stands for something, but no, I think it's just <laughs> what they call it, right? Because that's too good of a coincidence. That'd be so on brand contriving an acronym to spell out ding. <laughs> yeah, it probably is a backronym. So it's probably like, you know, debris impact. I got two of the first ones, debris Ooh, impact. Uh, I bet you it's something. Numbering glossary. I don't know. Oh, there you Jordan, go. <laughs> Jordan in the chat says uh, debris impact, not good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm looking to see. I don't, I think officially it's just scratch and ding, like not a. Oh, I'm sure it's not really yeah, an, yeah. an acronym, but. <laughs> I real I want it to be like I went I went looking just in case. <laughs> Debris impact numbering guide number. Mm -hmm. I don't know, That's I better. <laughs> numbering guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the analysis concluded that this uh, piece of debris was most likely a piece of a circuit board, um, which had come from another vehicle, most likely an exploding upper stage. And they found this out by using a scanning electron microscope, as well as energy dispersive x-ray spectroscopy. The results showed that principally it was fiberglass and there was some other elements in there and I forgot to write them down, but basically um, it was all the kind of stuff that you would see in, in a piece of circuit board. The conclusion was that it was likely of low density, which was also very good. Uh, so, um, you know, it kind of, you know, dispersed pretty quickly once it made impact and, and uh, didn't do too much damage. Um, and that it was likely over one millimeter in size. Like I said, it did leave on the inside, uh, the exit side of the panel, about a five millimeter high, not crater, but the opposite of a crater, you know, it, uh, a, you know, raised Temple? surface. Uh, dimple. There you go. Mm. I guess that works. But otherwise, the mission was very successful. So I just wanted to leave it there <laughs> and maybe we can <laughs> come back to it since uh, obviously shuttle missions are so rich with uh, so many events, but I just kind of wanted to focus on uh, the one that pertained to the clue. Uh, but yeah, so that's your This Week in Space Flight History. Thank you, David. That was fun. And uh, it sounded like, uh, you know, returning to flight was just uh, a little challenging. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just kept running into issues. But uh, I'm glad that mission uh, went out well. And yeah. And I like how by adding and pebble to the clue, 
you uh, <laughs> went from like nine winners down to two. So uh, that's yeah. that that some good. Yeah, your clue was way easier. <laughs> good cluing there. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, next week is the 12th to the 18th of September. Do you have a clue for us? All right. Next week in 2017, the clue is Sun Devoured. Sun Devoured. All right. Well, if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, you can email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon using the hashtag thisweeksf, or uh, you can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and then type slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to our Tombot who handles our clues on Discord. And so, uh, yeah, take a shot at it and good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So let's uh, move right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. Only three this week, so a lot less than last week. I think last week was a big one. Mm. Yeah. Only, only three and some question marks even on those guys. Yeah. So the first one is uh, an unknown payload launching on a long march 4C. This is uh, based on NOTAM. So it we don't have a guess on the payload, uh, and it might not even be a long march 4C. It might be another variant. But the NOTAMs run from Wednesday, September 6th at 18.06 UTC uh, to 18.29 UTC. So maybe something will be launching out of Juchuan in those hours. And then next up, we have uh, two weeks in a row now, another big news conference for a big space mission, although this one hasn't left Earth yet. And so uh, on NASA TV, uh, there will be a news conference for the upcoming Psyche mission, right? And so this is the one, the spacecraft is heading to uh, the similarly named, or not similarly, the same named asteroid Psyche um, to go and check it out. And so in any event, uh, this news conference is going to be on Wednesday, September 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern, again on NASA TV. And then after that, on the 10th, we have a possible Long March 6A, but we're not sure about this one. Uh, neither the launcher or payload again and that's launching well we have a launch window of 0421 utc through 0459 utc from launch complex 9a from the taiwan satellite launch center in china and uh we don't know if <laughs> about the payload and we're not even sure about the vehicle so i don't know what's going on in china we just don't know that's what we got i mean business as normal is is going on yeah well. true uh, anyway, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Broomvale, Jordan, Dave M., Colin, Mr. Cesium, Gopal, Astro, and Ryan R. for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen and you can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links get in touch find links to our mailing list discord server and mastodon account at the orbitalmechanics.com slash about where you can skip all that by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com that's it we'll see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you